Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season four of Talking with Traders with me, Garth McKenzie. It's been a lengthy hiatus since we completed season three of this series, so it's good to be back. Thank you to IG Markets for once again coming on board to fund and sponsor this podcast. Their involvement is hugely valuable, and we're proud to have such an award-winning CFD provider alongside us. In this season, I'll welcome back some of our most popular guests from previous seasons to get their updated views on the markets, and I'll also bring in some new guests too. I'll be asking them pertinent questions about how they trade the market and where they're seeing opportunities in the global trading and investing arena. The idea is that you, the listener, gain some valuable insight and education from these market professionals that may be of use in your own trading and investing. So with that in mind, let's get straight into this week's episode of Talking with Traders. Welcome back to Talking with Traders. And this time around, I welcome back another guest. In fact, it's his third appearance on Talking with Traders, and that's Bruce Main, backed by popular demand. Uh, Bruce Main is from Ivy Asset Managers, and he's got some interesting stuff to talk to us about this time because the, on our previous conversation, we didn't actually get around to talking about everything we wanted to speak about. He's such a wealth of knowledge. And uh, there were two other companies we wanted to speak about that we didn't get time to talk about. So we're going to talk about those today, but also Bruce has brought a friend with him. Uh, his friend is Willem van der Post from Simple Capital Partners. Uh, so we'll be talking to Willem as well about a very interesting initiative around democratizing venture capital uh, in a tokenized format. It's a really interesting conversation. I'm looking forward to speaking to you. So welcome to both of you. It's good to have uh, both of you on Talking With Traders today. Thanks very much, Scott. Super. Um, Bruce, let's get started with you, as I, as I mentioned. Um, we spoke towards the end of last year, and as always, when I speak to you, it's always fascinating because you, you do a lot of reading and digging around about all sorts of innovative investment ideas and concepts, and you're very often at the, the forefront of um, new investment themes before they become mainstream. Now, one of the themes that you have spoken to us in the past about is um, biotech and genetic editing. And there was a company called Immunity Bio that you wanted to speak to me about on our previous podcast. But as I said, we ran out of time. So we said we would uh, come back to it on a second follow-up podcast. And that's exactly what we're doing today. So talk to us a little bit about this company, Immunity Bio, Bruce, and what you like so much about it. So I think first off, um, <clears throat> we want to look at the at the history of the person behind it, which is actually a South African, uh, Dr. Patrick Sunswong, who left here in the 1980s. And he uh, was fundamental in, in founding a drug called Abraxane that was a revolutionary drug in the cancer markets and is still, in fact, used today. So he is one of the, I think he is the wealthiest doctor in the world. So you're dealing with a very bright person that has already gone through all of the difficulties and approvals of getting a drug approved by the FDA. And you now have an amalgamation of the companies uh, that he had, that uh, Nanquest, which eventually all merged in to become one entity, Immunity Bio, where he's got all his biotech-based businesses, clinical trials uh, into drug production. I think what the market's missing, and I actually want to read you a statement that he made uh, in the early part of, uh, of 
2011, where he said his grand vision was aimed at uniting data, genomics, and new drugs to vastly improve cancer care. And I think in that one sentence, it summarizes exactly what I've been particularly interested in the medical field and where it's going. You then split his businesses into the two focus areas that he's got, and that's in vaccinations. And then the second part is what they term immunotherapies. So both of these in their own right can become mega businesses with inside immunity buy on their own. And I think if you look at the latest raft of acquisitions and the areas where he's moved into, he's bought biological facilities that can actually produce these vaccines or gone into partnerships uh, with producers where he, he's not partnering with a Pfizer or one of the drug majors, they are doing it themselves. So I see this as a biotech, small, medium cap business. When I say that it's a 2.8 billion business as it stands, but I believe that this will morph into a much bigger play and that, that, that we'll get to in our bull and bear case. But if we start on the vaccine side, What's very, very different, and one of the, the vaccines that they are busy working on with a joint venture with Amaris is a COVID vaccine. Now, you and I, and we've all had our vaccines, we, we understand them as blockers. So what's actually happening is we are being prevented from getting uh, a mass infection, mass COVID infection uh, by blocker vaccines. And that's your typical uh, Pfizer uh, vaccine that, uh, that a lot of us have had. This vaccine is a killer vaccine. So what it's actually doing is it's looking for the virus in your body and it's, it's destroying it. And I think what's very important around that is it basically stops the virility of the virus and it slows down uh, these waves and it actually kills it. So this, uh, in my view, uh, could be very exciting for them uh, in terms of where they can take that. I, I think COVID is coming to an end, so it might not be as exciting as it was if this had uh, come out maybe a year ago, but I definitely think it has its application in actually destroying the virus. So that's that's the one side of the business. The second, um, Antiva, uh, which is the cytokine that they've uh, produced, which is currently going under FDA approval. And I want to understand and just explain to the to the listeners uh, about cytokines. And in fact, again, if we go back to COVID, when you get infected by uh, the COVID virus, your immune system reacts to kill the virus. What actually happens in a patient that gets very ill and has to be ventilated, um, they go through a process of what's called a cytokine storm. And it's actually the overreaction of your own immune system that does the damage that gives you the COVID pneumonia. So what a cytokine is effectively doing is it's controlling how your immune system reacts and termed an immunotherapy. So where I think these are very exciting is you can tailor these to get a certain reaction to certain types of cancer, and you actually activate your own immune system that exposes the cancer. Mm -hmm. It can kill it, and then it creates a memory response. So what it's actually doing in that sort of tri-circle is it now remembers what the cancer cell looked like and it stops uh, you getting uh, relapses and, and, and basically having the cancer coming back. So Antiva, which is going through the FDA approval at the moment, um, has had a, what they term, a 72% complete response with zero side effects. Where I got very excited when I saw that is a drug that's similar to what 
they are, are busy with and, and going through the FDA approval is a company uh, called Merck that has Keytruda. And Keytruda is an immunotherapy with a 40% complete response and has modest side effects. And that is a 14 to 16 annual billion dollar revenue line for Merck. And, and if I look at where immunity buyers positioned with the biologic facilities that it's recently purchased, how long it's been going through the FDA process, um, I believe that they're getting very close to being approved and, and they'll be start, start being able to produce the immunotherapies in-house. So, so through all of that, um, I think your risks are obviously the FDA approval and, and the wait for that to, to happen, um, which should be the mid of this year. And I think as the market begins to understand what size opportunity it is, I think, uh, you know, two 2.8 billion market cap business is not uh, valuing what I feel is decades of intellectual property, um, the, the legacy of successes that, are, that already uh, Dr. Sun Shuang has been able to, uh, to get through. So if we look now at, at the opportunity and, and why it's arisen, biotechs have all been under massive pressure over the last year and a half. The share price has come from $45 to six. The, all the information about the underlying company has only improved over the last uh, seven to eight months. And in fact, with the, uh, with the potential of the vaccine release, which, and, and another part of it, which is, a, is very exciting, is it's an oral or nasal dose. So it's not actually a vaccine that you have to have injected, more like a polio drop. And, and obviously because of that no cold chain, um, the, the distribution around the world becomes a hell of a lot easier. So if we take all of that and put it into context, I feel with a low level of accepting of acceptance from the market, um, and this is the sort of bear case, I feel that the IP, the joint ventures currently underway, plus the already successful trials that they've had with the immunotherapies, uh, it's, it's, a, it's closer to a 10 billion market cap business than its current 2.8. So that's four times your money. In a bull case scenario, um, I think, it becomes as successful as a key truder. Uh, and if that's the case, uh, you're looking at a between 20, 25 billion in annual revenue, 100 billion market cap business, and that's 38 times your money. So significant upside on that. So yeah, yeah. so that, that sums up uh, immunity buyer. Yeah. Okay. And for listeners that are wanting to have a look at the, the share code is IBRX and it's listed in, uh, in New York. It's on the NASDAQ if you want to go and check it out. But I mean, Bruce, you're right. It's taken a hell of a beating over the last year. I'm just looking at the share price chart in front of me right now. And as you said, it was $45 at one stage in early 2021. It's now down near $6. So it's taken a thorough beating. And that's quite common across all of the uh, biotech stocks. I mean, one that you spoke to us about on a previous podcast was CRISPR. Um, and there are a few others that I follow as well, and they've all been thrashed. Um, are, are you still, I mean, uh, what I wanted to ask you is besides immunity bio, which you obviously like, are you still keen on the likes of a, of a CRISPR? And are there other stocks in the sector that also grab your attention that you would be putting into a portfolio at these sort of depressed levels? Yeah. So I think, again, you, you can obviously get cover of the entire market through, um, for example, ARC Genomics, that's ARKG. You also, very good, uh, BlackRock's got two, one the Future Health ETF and the other just the General Health ETF. I think the Future Health 
ETF could be quite interesting. And again, you know, if you look at, at, at what immunity buyers done, and you go back to that first comment right at the beginning, and, and, and it really is the, the future of medicine is actually the, the, the utilization of artificial intelligence, um, gene sequencing, and the ability to eventually come with what's termed precision medicine. And I think these immunotherapies, and I know um, in South Africa less than uh, six, seven months ago, uh, and it was uh, on one of our local uh, uh, news shows, a person that had a form of cancer that they didn't think that they could cure. And he went into one of these immunotherapy programs. And, you know, what was quite remarkable is he said, as opposed to going through uh, chemotherapy, which they said wasn't probably going to work and make him really sick, he went on the immunotherapies where literally you retrain your own immune system to react to the virus and and destroy it, or in the case of the cancer, destroy the diseased cells. And he didn't change anything. There was no lifestyle change at all. You literally are taking an infusion, which is uh, which which is in a cold chain, but can be thawed out and delivered to um, anyone as an outpatient. And these sort of things, in the way that the the applications of of medicine are changing, it's somewhere where you have to have exposure. So so I think the ETFs, CRISPR, um, Pacific Biosciences, and the sequencing side, all of these. They're not going away. And if anything, I think they're going to become more and more and more relevant as time goes on. Yeah. Okay. So as you say, if you wanted a diversified exposure across the sector without specifically going after stocks yourself, then the ARC Genomics um, Fund is one to look at because it includes all of these businesses that you've mentioned to us. Yes, correct. All right, super. Now, Bruce, for the purposes of brevity, because we are limited on time, which is always a pity when I speak to you because I could talk to you all day. But um, the other company we said we would would wanted to speak about, uh, which is listed on the JSE, in fact, is is Renogen, and it's one of very few really exciting uh, opportunities on the JSE in terms of uh, a, a big future. Um, yeah, the, the JSE has really not had many new listings at all for a long time in terms of anything exciting. But Renogen breaks that mold. Um, and Anthony Clark, who spoke to us at the end of last year, also likes the business. Um, but you, you're a big fan of it. You said to us you've been invested since 12 Rand, which is was a long way from where it is currently. You like the business. Tell us a little bit more about it from your perspective, Bruce. Perfect. So, so I think Absolutely. Anthony Clark's actually written an outstanding piece on it. So if anyone wants to go and look at that, already give you the nitty gritty of the business. That's it, at Small Talk Daily on Twitter. And you yeah. can actually go and look up and see the history of Renogen. So I think the interesting parts about this is I've never met a management team that are working the whole time just to try and extract out another opportunity, look for value. And I, and I think they really have gone way beyond what normal management teams do. And I think that really impresses me. And in one of those cases, uh, they came out where you're able to buy a helium-linked crypto token. And I think this is the first time you can see the merging of the blockchain and and that type of environment being brought into the formal uh, fundraising uh, market. And I really, that stood out for me. And obviously, the success of it, $25 million they raised in a very, very short period of time. And I think that intrigued me because it shows you that this crypto and blockchain environment 
is becoming a new way of, of, of raising funds. And, you know, that goes back to the conference that we had in 2017 about Bitcoin. And at that conference, I, I was very fortunate to meet Willem van der Post, head of Simple Capital. And, you know, our whole discussion surrounded the, the future of uh, the future of capital and democratizing growth capital, giving people access uh, to to opportunities that you wouldn't normally be able to get uh, access to because of uh, them being dominated by institutions. Yeah. And I think that th- those are the type of things that really interest me. And uh, and again, you know, that led me on to partnering with Simple Capital and looking at helping them uh, grow this opportunity, which is uh, democratizing. Uh, uh, growth capital. Yeah, super. We're going to bring Willem into the conversation in a minute, and he's going to talk to us about what they're doing at Simple Capital. I just want to talk to you a little bit more about this Renogen story quickly, um, and specifically around this Helium token. And perhaps for listeners who didn't listen to the podcast with Anthony Anthony Clark previously, where he gave a great rundown on on um, Renogen. If, if I have to summarize it very briefly in 10 seconds, it's essentially, it's a business that produces helium and it's got a very bright future. Helium is a gas which most people know because it's in party balloons and it's lighter than air and that's what makes the balloons float up into the sky. But there's a hell of a lot more to helium than that. It's, it's massive in terms of its cooling functionalities um, in um, data centers and various other utilities utilities like that. So helium is a is a very, very interesting gas and it's got a very bright future. Um, and that's where Renogen is playing. But just to talk to you quickly, Bruce, about this token, um, this helium token, so that I understand it as a bit of a, a novice in this space as well. I mean, what is it? it, it I, I think about most commodities, like let's just say, for example, natural gas, maybe that's the most similar thing we can compare it to. And you get natural gas futures, which are traded on, on exchanges, uh, futures exchanges around the world now how how does a helium token differ um to to that so so if i understand the 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 exact mechanics of it is what what uh, what renogen was attempting to do is to create a spot market for helium and those tokens are 100 percent backed by their production so if you go and buy you know a hundred thousand dollars worth of crypto helium tokens, you can actually call for physical delivery of that helium uh, backed by Renogen on that token. So it was in an effort to create a little bit more visibility of the spot market uh, of helium. And, and the, the reason being, and, and I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head, it's actually a very rare gas in, mm. uh, in, uh, in the world. So it's a very, very difficult to get hold of it. Most of it uh, is trapped and and is released through some of the big gas reserves. Your big gas majors will, will produce helium. What's very unique about Renogen is the concentration levels of helium are, are, are significantly higher than the majority of, of gas fines around the world. And it has a lot to do with just the particular gas basin where Renogen is based. Um, there's a very, very high concentration of uranium in the soil. And through a natural uranium decay, um, helium uh, atoms are released and it gets trapped in the gas. So it's a very unique find worldwide. It's one of the few, uh, in fact, no, it is the find that is, is concentrations of 3 to 4% helium. Um, it's worth an enormous amount of money. So I think the commissioning and getting the plant right um, is obviously a top priority for them at the moment. But, uh, but Garth, uh, I think 
through that and, and, and especially the fact that it's listed as a, as a strategic element by the US government, um, I see a lot of uh, potential foreign backing um, and ultimately a potential US listing of the business as well. So I think uh, business-wise, uh, lots of activity with the commissioning of phase one, and then obviously a potential capital raise for phase two. And part of that could be selling additional helium tokens into the market where uh, even big uh, gas demand for helium, they could buy the tokens to ask for delivery um, in 225, 226. Okay, very interesting. Now, I mean, you said to me off air, yeah, you've gotten into the company for your clients at 12 Rand a share, I and mean, it's currently trading at around 36 Rand a share. So you've tripled your money uh, there, or two, 200 times, 200% times your money um, on that. Mm-hmm. But it, what's interesting, look, I guess if I can play the devil's advocate or the skeptic in this is that this is a company that was little known previously. And all of a sudden in the last year, maybe six months only, it's become very, very widely known in the retail place in in the retail space. And we've seen the share price uh, rise significantly. Um, It does kind of get me a little bit nervous when, when retail money is chasing something like this that has run so hard, because as we know, as unfortunate as it is, retail money often comes into these things last and, and at the top in many cases. Um, do you feel then at this price, 36 Rand a share for energy, and that, that, is, that this is still, you know, represents decent value for the future prospects of the business? Because obviously these types of things are very capital intensive and, and, and it can take a long time for this uh, type of operation to come to any sort of fruition? Yeah, so so I think very importantly, phase one is busy uh, being commissioned and that goes uh, fully live uh, April, May this year. So we're going to see a, gra- a good visibility of what, what that project delivers and what kind of gas is fine. So I think a lot of the de-risking will happen once fa- phase uh, one goes live. Then I do agree with you that if the if the share runs a lot from here, it's obviously now factoring in the development of phase two, which is a, a, a very very big uh, operation. I mean, you're talking about an, a 12 billion rand uh, capital raise um, to get uh, phase two online, which is a significant uh, tick up in production. I've looked at some of the numbers of 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 analysts, and again, you go the bull and the bear sort of cases, and and in one of them. The, the, the EPS of 226 is sitting at around 14 Rand 50 in earnings. Now, remember, it is a very capital intensive business to put money into, obviously, build the infrastructure that uh, separates the gas and liquefies it, and then you can transport it. Uh, but it doesn't have a lot of operational costs once it's up and running. So there's not a lot of OPEX once all of this is set up. You don't have underground shafts and, you know, uh, potential risk of, of, of miners uh, dying underground, etc. So, so it's actually not a very risky business post um, the, the capital expenditure and the build-out. So I, I think successful commissioning of phase one will de-risk it somewhat. If they can get everything right, um, by 225, 226, you know, at 14 Rand 15 earnings, you probably could be getting back um, eight, nine Rand in the dividend. And uh, and it could be 155 to 160 Rand share. So, okay. so I think there's significant upside from here. Um, uh, once you de-risk phase one, and then obviously on successful capital raise in phase two. 
Okay. All right. Super. Very interesting. Now that leads us to the next part of the discussion. And I mentioned that we begin to welcome Willem van der Post to the conversation. And you've, you've also spoken about how you introduced you or how you and him met previously. Um, the link kind of for listeners that might be wondering where this is going. The link is that you and Willem met at a blockchain conference and the, the link I'm trying to make for the purposes of this podcast is that we were just talking a moment ago about a, a token for trading helium and how this whole world is changing in terms of the tokenization of assets and so on. Um, and that's where you met Willem. Perhaps you can just introduce Willem to us, Bruce, and then I want to take the conversation forward with Willem from there. Brilliant. So, so in a nutshell, you know, and whenever I've had a discussion with Willem and I, I go, you know, my vision of a future exchange, it's 24-7, it's 365, it never shuts down, it's instant settlement, you know, the things are going to change and I think they're going to accelerate further and further. And I think along that line, when Willem and I have ever had a discussion about what is the few? How will you buy an ETF or, a, or, or, or get into a financial product? And I see exchanges, crypto exchanges, almost merging into a delivery vehicle where you are able to package a, 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 an investment package together and allow people access to it at a fraction of the cost of, of what markets offer today. And I think Willem would be in agreement with that in the discussions that we've had. And that's why I've always found him uh, somebody that's, that's definitely looking towards the future and, and where these opportunities lie. You're listening to Talking With Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. So we welcome now Willem van der Post to the conversation. Willem is from Simple Capital Partners. Willem, welcome. Welcome to Talking with Traders. God, thanks very much for having me. And I was just say I'm quite disappointed of handing over and transitioning to me because I was making notes while Bruce was speaking. Really, really fun to listen to him. Yeah, you and I both. I always find it fascinating listening to Bruce and all the interesting different investment perspectives that he comes with. Um, Willem, you, you and Bruce have a, effectively a joint venture between IV Asset Managers and your company, Simple, Simple Capital Partners. Um, and what you really are looking to do is, is democratize venture capital. Now, it's an interesting concept. Um, if I had to think about it, and, and, and I know obviously we've spoken off air, so we've got a, I've got a bit of a background, but you know, we think about private equity, um, which is a space where business, you know, investors, high-scale investors can go into businesses that are often not accessible to the retail investor. Um, and then you get crowdfunding, which is sort of the opposite, where everybody, uh, the retail public can get involved, but it's not a particularly regulated space. and You don't always know what you're getting into. What you're doing with Simple Capital Partners is, is something different. You're democratizing venture capital and is essentially in, via a token mechanism, which is something that's listed on the blockchain, uh, enabling the retail public to invest into venture capital businesses through this token. I don't know whether I've explained it correctly. Maybe you can tidy it up, tidy up what I've just said there, Willem. <laughs> sure, Garth. Thank you. Um, I, I will say that in the main, Simple Capital does two things. Um, there's a sort of retail 
leg to our business, which is where we have the democratization of venture capital. And then there's a corporate venture capital as a service business. And the two hold hands cosmically. Um, in the first instance, yes, very few people actually have the opportunity to participate in early stage deals. The, the, the crowdfunding that you mentioned is a form of that, but, but kind of as platforms that allow for angel uh, investors or colloquially sometimes referred to as fools, family and friends mm. for a reason. Um, And then obviously private equity is much later stage and there in the middle sit companies that are post recurring revenue pre profit, where Joe, everyone in the street does not know that they exist or that a deal could exist through which to invest into those companies. And so essentially our democratization mission um, is to firstly provide liquidity to our investors. So we're not an AUM model. You're not in the fund for seven plus two plus one or those sort of known models. You buy a pref share from us, which you can sell. And in there, we'll link to tokenization in a second. Um, secondly, we will add diversity to your pref share. So that pref share will hold maybe four or five underlying early stage companies that we've curated and selected. We bring you that deal flow. And then we also shrink the ticket size because normally these deals at that stage of a company go for sort of $300,000 up to $3 million. And very few uh, average people have got that lying around to build a portfolio with. So uh, with us, you can buy in for as little as $1,000 per, per pref share. That then gives you this liquidity, the diversity, the deal flow, and the quality. Okay, fascinating. And, yeah. Oh, Garth, I was just going to say on the, on the other end of the scale, which is this cosmic link, in the VC world, we see a sort of repeating golden ratio, which is 110-1, in that 100 people talk about starting a business, 10 actually do, and one is successful. And of the nine that fail, interestingly, we see seven fail for the same reason. In the B2C space, that's not getting access to the C. And so what's happened was this perfect storm of corporates realizing through the advent of exponential technologies the likes of which you've mentioned already today, blockchain, crypto, uh, AI, machine learning, that they need to make investments into these early stage opportunities, but they've got corporate finance or PE teams. They don't know how to do this, you know, typically M&A stuff, where this is way earlier than that. And so if you are able to secure an investment into a company that has as its anchor client, one of these corporates that are looking to make these investments, your 110-1 ratio becomes 110-2 or 110-3 or 4 or 5. And of course, we know that venture capital is very lucrative when you do it right, not so lucrative when you do it wrong. Mm. Um, but in there lies the cosmic link for our retail investors, because some of our portfolio actually also is bought into by our corporate clients. Okay. All right. Very interesting. So, um, you know, it's early stages, I guess, for you, but how much capital have you raised so far through, through this um, vehicle? So on the corporate side, we're not really at liberty to talk about the quantums of capital. Suffice to say that a lot of corporates in South Africa are pioneering in this space. So the amounts aren't black rock vast yet, but yeah. we do see them growing steadily. And on the retail side, every bundle or pref share that we, that we make available is different in that the underlying companies are different and therefore the size of the tickets vary. Initially, when we were a startup ourselves, we did sort of $150,000 per ticket. Um, we're now on um, Pref say J or K. So you can do the math there. 
And um, our next round will be uh, $750,000. And we do these on a quarterly basis. So you can see sort of how we're trying to grow every pref share by 50% um, every time we go to the market. Okay. All right. Super. And can you give us some examples of the types of in, of businesses that you've invested in thus far? We'd love to. Um, the principle of our retail mandate is to look for exponentially structured organizations that have massively transformative purposes that the founders and, in fact, the evangelic customers can rally around. And they must be technology enabled, such as to allow for global scalability. And, um, you know, internally, we've got a little joke because everyone talks about unicorns. We like to talk about sunicorns. And hopefully, if we apply our mandate correctly, uh, some of these globally scalable companies will, in fact, then manifest as such. So um, I'll give you just a couple uh, of our first ones include a, a, a Toronto-based company named Builder, which is a marketplace and a platform for home renovation uh, run by an ex-team from Uber. And of course, home renovation in the COVID era just went through the roof as more people look to expand their residential homes for comfort of working from home. Um, they've 4X'd uh, their growth in GMV year on year. Um, perhaps another one or two interesting ones, Flex Club, which is uh, also run by ex-Uber teams uh, housed in the Netherlands. They have had 10X growth in subscriptions over the last uh, 12 months. And essentially that's car ownership through a subscription model operating in South Africa and Mexico. Perhaps one that links to our earlier conversation is Moment. This is an NFT marketplace. So um, essentially relying on cryptography and blockchain type technology for minted coins, as it were. Mm-hmm. And currently, Moment is the third, um, third biggest NFT marketplace in the world. And they're under 100 days old. Um, and then maybe just two more quickly, uh, Rotoro, which is an entirely new way of owning clothing. So it's an equivalent in the UK of a company in the US named Rent the Runway, which is a unicorn. And then one that we're very excited about is Lula, um, which helps convenience stores make it online for last mile delivery platform leverage like Uber Eats, Lyft, uh, Joker, GoPuff. And these guys are growing insanely. In November, they added 32 more chain stores to their customer list. And so you can see, yes, post-recurring revenue, it means that the, there is market fit, but it's pre-profit. We bring the capital and the networks and the partnerships to help scale that business now that we know there's market appetite for what they sell. Okay. All right. It's very interesting. Now, I'm just trying to think about this now from a listener's perspective. And obviously, this, this show is called Talking with Traders. And this, this particular podcast hasn't really been that much about trading, really. But I'm going to try and tie it back a little bit to the trading component, which is you know, what we're here to talk about to some extent. Now, imagine I'm a retail investor. I've got my $1,000 or maybe I've got $10,000 or whatever. I want to get involved. I want to um, invest my money into this. It's the first time I've got access to venture capital because as you said, you've democratized venture capital. How do I go about it? Okay, so we'll distribute a QR code for this, but essentially you get in touch with our team. Um, We are still a young company in that we haven't formalized all of our technology plays that will automate a lot of this stuff. So for now, the on-ramp, as it were, is a connection and network-based on-ramp. Um, that is also facilitatable through QR codes and hyperlinks. 
Uh, once you're in the system, though, there's a lot of automation as regards your ability to transfer funding, where we've now got partners and also, in fact, this morning introduced credit card payment facilities. That allows you to get your capital into the UK, where our holding company sits, and that then allows you to buy into these PREF shares or bundles, as we call them, as and when we make them available. And I think the key thing, if you're talking trading theme, is that unlike AUM, um, we are in a fund for a predetermined period of time with some rollover options. This is a share that you own that you can sell. So as long as there is a buyer and you are a seller, and of course, we know that that's basically just the price determinant, uh, you'll be able to move your share um, and the ownership of that share. Yeah, that's that's the part that interests me. So, you know, I, and I wanted to ask you, how liquid is it? You mentioned there that as long as there's a buyer, I can sell my my token. Um, let's say, for example, I come along, I've got my one thousand dollars. I buy the token. I'm in, and for whatever reason, I need to exit uh, in in six months' time. How easy is it for me then to sell it? So look, I think in South Africa we've got to be realistic. Venture capital is a fairly underrepresented space. There's a lot of private equity that tries to do deals a little bit earlier, some even masquerade as VC, but there's very few true VC in South Africa. The consequence of which is that the asset class is not that well understood, specifically as regards timeframes and also follow on rounds of funding as these companies are typically very capital hungry. And so I think that with education and awareness, this democratization will bring about more buyers, but we need to stimulate this market. Um, what we have seen, of course, is that if the price is right, buyers will come. And mm -hmm. so at the moment, Simple Capital will help you with evaluation of your PREF share, which then would include four or five underlying entities, uh, such as to be able to price for it appropriately. I'm going to be uh, specifically strategically tight-lipped on our technology developments and what you'll see roll out in the coming year. Uh, suffice to say that I think regulation and compliance are a barrier for a lot of VC aspirants to get around. But let me just say that the fund or the venture capital firm that gets compliance, regulation, and tokenization right stand to make a lot of money in this space by helping consumers with this access and the ensuing liquidity that a tokenization would afford you. Yeah, no, that's it. I mean, I can completely see that. And as you say, if you get all of those three things right, I'm sure it does have a great deal of potential. Um, I, I suppose to some extent, it's also a bit of a chicken and egg scenario though, where you need, obviously you need investors trusting enough to be able to come in and participate in this, but then you have to have built them something that they can trust and trust the process and so on, which is clearly what you're trying to do. Um, is there going to be a, a market maker in, in these tokens in the early stages? Because that's often you know, how you get a market off the ground. Look, it's an interesting question because the whole philosophy that underpins venture capital is that you're in this for the longer run. Yeah. And it's almost as if the liquidity requirements will typically be for those that either ran into hardship or face some form of anomaly that are, would typically force them to think about liquidation. Because the normal way of doing VC is that you back the company and the founder, and then you continue to pour capital in. You're not really looking to exit until such time as either there's an IPO or a sell 
to a VC or a large corporate comes in to swoop up the, the shares and they don't want rats and mice around. Mm. So the philosophy of VC really dictates that you'll be in there for a longer time and not really seek liquidity. And also we find that the profile of investor is typically someone that already has the over-the-counter shares and the publicly traded shares covered. They've got um, pension plans and retirement plans in place and venturing represents a really small percentage of their total portfolio vis-a-vis five to 7% of total net worth. Um, Of course, what we're trying to do is to make sure that people get in earlier in their lives, such as to take a part in this ride, which typically uh, lasts uh, three to seven years before companies achieve that scale where they become prospects to buyers. Okay, so, so that being the backdrop, that doesn't mean that there isn't uh, a need for liquidity. It's just the genesis from which it stems. And absolutely, I think, as I tight-lippedly mentioned before, uh, the outfit that gets this market-making right um, stands to really, really help with the notion of democratizing VC and stands to gain from that economically. Yeah, no, without a doubt, I can, I can see that potential. Um I had one more question. Is there anyone doing this offshore? Because obviously you're focusing on a South African market where you're South African business, presumably with global aspirations. But is this being done successfully offshore? So we are offshore. We are a London-based VC. Ah, and okay. it just happens to be that we're South Africans because we like the cost arbitrage of living in rands while we're building a balance sheet in, in uh, Forex. Um, but yes, what we see is that the alternative asset space is being rushed at by a variety of competitors or aspirant competitors to try and harness the velocity of the capital flow. Now that I think there's a lot of disillusionment with uh, stock exchanges, it seems from what I'm reading as if the number of companies listed on the JSC have halved, the number uh, of US listed companies has halved. It's only really in Asia, which has English as a barrier, or non-English as a barrier rather, where the numbers have have increased. And so I think the capital markets are seeking alternatives. I think the issue that a lot of incumbents are facing is they don't know how to um, clearly define themselves vis-a-vis are they tech companies or platforms hoping to trade in a particular type of industry or are they industry experts looking to use technology to scale? And the, the, the friction that sits between those two identities often cause inertia or failure to launch with a lot of incumbents where a lot of capital has been invested in companies like these without adequate returns. Um, so I think, uh, yes, you'll definitely see this space heating up. Yes, there are a whole bunch of competitors to us, both in our market and in other markets. Um, but again, regulation, compliance, two huge issues to get around. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's very, very interesting. And I must say, I'll be fascinated to watch the progress as you go. Um, I want to bring Bruce back into the conversation here um, because we, yeah, Bruce, you and I have been in the stock market business for, for a while, you, you longer than me. Um, but obviously, we're very familiar with companies being listed on exchanges and they go through a listing process and there's certain requirements that need to be met. And it's quite cumbersome and it's quite expensive to list, et cetera, et cetera. These are all sort of barriers to entry. Um, but what, what Willem is doing here is very interesting in the sense that if this can take off, it kind of almost negates the need for stock exchanges in the future, doesn't it? So I think God spot on uh, and, and, and very much Willem gets to do the interesting stuff, which is look at all these 
great businesses with great management that, that have visions. I, I'll end up helping on the compliance background, <laughs> dealing with all, all of that. So that's my part of the JV. But it's, uh, no, I'm joking. But it's just, it shows you that without a doubt, there, there is a massive amount of regulation that's made it difficult to bring these to market. And I think what you're seeing is the utilization of technology, the ability uh, to use um, crypto exchanges. And as I said, from the beginning, if I look at look at what's going to happen, I would I would look at exchanges moving towards uh, these type of companies, uh, and eventually a sort of amalgamated version um, will become the norm. I, I think that's the way it's going to go. Mm. Very, very interesting, and good. and 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 the numbers, as you said, Willem, the companies delisting um, on the JSE, it's rife, um, and there's virtually no new listings there. But in the US, also a fair fair amount of oh, a lot of IPOs, but also companies are raising capital in different ways now. There's not everybody does an IPO to raise capital, so it's interesting to see how these these new vehicles and the the advent, I suppose, of blockchain technology is actually creating other avenues for how um, listed, and I'm using listed in, in air quotes, um, can, uh, can actually be traded in different formats on the blockchain. Um, 100% got. Yeah. So if I could just say, I think two things there. First is this alternative channel that's now been technology-driven, bred, and made available. So the access is much greater, hence democratization. But the other thing is transparency. So a single middleman as opposed to value chain of middlemen, together with irrefutable evidence for transaction and transaction costs, I think is what really holds the appeal for the capital markets. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's very, very interesting. It's going to be a fascinating development uh, to watch progress. Um, and it would be nice to get you back on the podcast again, perhaps in a year's time, Willem, to speak about the progress that you've had with this initiative and to understand you know, how the liquidity is improving and how it's growing. Because I think this is certainly a space that we would want to watch going into the future. Um, we've run out of time. I think that's it, that's it uh, in terms of our allotted time for this podcast. So I want to thank both of you for joining me. It's been a pleasure speaking to both of you, Bruce. Always fascinating to have you on the on the podcast and share to get your insights into some of the businesses that you're looking at. And thanks for bringing Willem along. Willem, it was very interesting chatting to you as well. Thanks very thanks much. Thanks very much, Scott. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking With Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to this series by clicking on the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also appreciate if you'd leave a review on the app too. Till next time.